Would you pray with me as we prepare to open the Word of God together? Father, as 2021 begins, we want to ascribe holiness and greatness and majesty to your name. Father, you are the good and faithful, redeeming, loving God. We love you because you first loved us. And Lord, as this new year begins, I pray that we as the community of Christ in this neighborhood would be a light to the world and in the world. Father, give us wisdom and give us enablement and give us fresh hope and courage to minister to our neighborhood and indeed to the world through online activities as well. Father, we want your, your name to be made great in our midst. And so we're praying that you would guide us along this path and that this year would be a year in which you are glorified and great blessing comes to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. And now as we open your word, Lord, I pray very just very simply for blessing for your people as we together uh, look into the things of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Hugh already mentioned in the announcements, we have just come through uh, a, a difficult year, a, a year of significant trouble and loss for many people and anxiety as well. No doubt about it, 20, 2020 uh, was a trial. As this new year dawns now, I think one of the healthiest things that we can do collectively together is to put into practice Philippians 4 verse 8. To begin this new year by thinking together on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And one of the loveliest, most honorable, and noble stories in all of Scripture is the story of Ruth. The Lord has led us to the book of Ruth as 2021 kicks off. The plan is to spend the next 12 Sundays pouring over this beautiful book, and it is a beautiful book, listening to what the Spirit says in this book, allowing him to teach us, to change us through what he has inspired and written here. Now, in addition to the 12 sermons that we are offering on Ruth, every Monday at noon, um, I will also be posting what we could call supplementary videos. Uh, so I'm resurrecting the 1225 Live videos again. And in those Monday videos, you'll find additional, um, I hope, helpful extended discussions on various aspects of the book of Ruth. So do look for the first of those videos uh, to be posted tomorrow at noon on this very channel. And thus ends my spiritual commercial for the morning. This morning, our plan is simply to provide an introduction to the book of Ruth. 
We are not actually going to dive into the first portion of the text of Ruth until next Sunday, Lord willing. But this morning, we will be referencing various verses in the book of Ruth and in other places in Scripture, so I encourage you to please have your Bible open in front of you. Our first step this morning is to ask a very basic question, and that is the question, what is the book of Ruth all about? And I think there are several legitimate answers that might be given to such a question. The book of Ruth is about ordinary people obeying God and showing kindness to one another, and in the process, producing breathtaking results. The book of Ruth is about that. The book of Ruth is about God working steadily and working mysteriously, and working amazingly, mostly behind the scenes in this book, in what we could call hidden providence. God works through ordinary human beings here to bring about his perfect will and plan. The book of Ruth is about that. The book of of Ruth is about God working dramatic reversals, emptiness to fullness, famine to plenty, chaos to restoration, death to life, sadness to joy. Bitterness to hope. The book of Ruth is about redemption. It is a rescue story. Rescue through the extravagant kindness of a redeemer. The book of Ruth is about kindness. The kindness of God working through the kindness of the human actors. The book of Ruth is about how David entered the world. In fact, Ruth can be taken as David's birth narrative. A four-chapter birth narrative of David. The book of Ruth is about all of those things that we've just mentioned and more. Well, let's ask a few more basic questions about this book. Who wrote the book of Ruth? Who was the author of this book? Well, very simple answer here. We don't know. The author never reveals his or her name. So we can dispense with that question fairly quickly. When was the book of Ruth written? When did the anonymous author sit down and write this book? Well, again... We can't be exact on the date of writing, but since the person of David is mentioned toward the end of the book, it means that the book had to be written after David came into the world, which means it was written after 1000 BC. The best estimate here is that Ruth was written 
at some point between 950 BC and 700 BC. In other words, this book that we're studying over the next 12 weeks was written about 2,800 years ago or so. That's a long time ago. And then let's also talk for a moment about the original audience of this book of Ruth. I think if you were alive at the time of Israel's exile to Babylon, reading the book of Ruth during that time would give you some real hope. Because what we find at the beginning of the book of Ruth is this. We find an Israelite family essentially exiled out of the land because of a famine. They are over in Moab at the beginning of the book. But stemming out of that exile for this family, arising later on through an astonishing series of events that begins at that exile in Moab, what stems out of this is the coming into the world of Israel's greatest king, King David. So if you're a, one of the exiled people reading Ruth over in Babylon, you would have hope as you read this book. You'd think to yourself, you know, as David had arisen ultimately out of a dire situation of exile, book of Ruth, so now God could raise another Davidic king for Israel out of the present dire situation of exile in Babylon. There was hope for another David, hope for another king in David's line who would come out of the ashes of Babylonian exile. Ruth would give you hope in that way. Now, just a bit of a recap here. So far, we've talked very briefly about four different things. What's the book of Ruth about? Who wrote the book? When was the book written? And we've talked a little bit about the original audience of the book of Ruth. What I want to do next is to talk about the placement of the book of Ruth in the canon of Scripture. The placement of the book of Ruth in the canon of Scripture. What we need to understand is this, that the specific place where books in the canon of Scripture appear is not a haphazard sort of a thing. The canon of Scripture, friends, is a work of art. It is a work of art. There was thought and there was consideration that went into the specific place or the specific location of the books, of each individual book within the 66-book whole that we have. Now, as a lead-in to this, let's talk just for a moment about the English word mine, M-I-N-E. Mine is a four-letter word, but depending on its placement in a sentence, it takes on different significances. For example, I want you to read the following sentence to yourself. The eggplant is mine. So in this instance, the word mine, of course, is a possessive word. Mine, the eggplant, belongs to me. 
But what happens to our same word mine in this sentence? I want to mine for nickel. Well, obviously, that same word mine now takes on a different shade of meaning. Now it means to dig or to excavate. Or we could use mine in this way also. He stepped on a mine and was severely injured. Well, now the word mine means a destructive military device, right? Well, what's the basic point of this little English grammar review? The basic point is that depending on the context in which we find the word mine, that exact same word can have several different meanings, several different significances. Think of the book of Ruth like that word, mine. The book itself takes on different significances depending on the context in which it's located in the canon of Scripture. And here's the thing. There have been three main places, three main contexts within the canon of Scripture where the book of Ruth has been placed by ancient interpretive communities. We want to talk about these three different placements or contexts for the book of Ruth. Our Bible reflects the Greek canonical tradition, the Greek canonical tradition, where the book of Ruth was placed purposely, purposely, after the book of Judges and before the book of Samuel. Now, if you have your Bible open this morning, you'll see that the book of Ruth comes in between Judges and Samuel. And again, that was not a haphazard thing. That was a thoughtful decision, a purposeful decision to place Ruth in that exact location. We're going to talk more about that particular placement of Ruth in just a few moments. But we find the, the second and third main placements of the book of Ruth in what's called the Hebrew canonical order. In the Hebrew canonical order, the book of Ruth is found within a broader group of books called the Ketuvim, or the writings. And in that group of books, it's either placed before the book of Psalms, immediately before Psalms, or more commonly in the Hebrew canonical tradition, Ruth is placed right after the book of Proverbs. Again, both of these placements within the Hebrew canonical tradition were thoughtful, carefully considered placements. They were not careless or haphazard in any way. There was theological reason involved in placing the book in these places. Those, those who placed the book in all three of these varied positions within the canon were operating under an assumption. And the assumption was that the book's very location within the wider canon would affect how the reader would understand the text. Remember our illustration of the word mine, right? Same word, three different contexts. It takes on a different shade of meaning depending on its placement in a given sentence. Well... 
With the book of Ruth, it takes on a different shade of significance in each of the three canonical placements that we've just outlined. So we want to talk about each of these in turn, and I want to make it very clear from the outset that there is definite value in all three of these placements. I think we should take all three of the placements as being wise and as contributing cumulatively to our understanding of the book of Ruth. So let's make that clear. One particular canonical placement is not necessarily to be preferred to the other two. All three make a good deal of sense. As Peter Lau and Gregory Goswell say in their book on Ruth, they say the book works well in all three canonical placements. So now is the point in today's message where we need to open our Bible a little bit. Let's talk first about the placement of Ruth that you and I are probably most familiar with. It's placement right after the book of Judges and prior to the book of Samuel in the Greek canonical tradition. Now, we suggested earlier that the book of Ruth was most likely written, written at some point within the lifetime of David, but that doesn't mean that the story in the book was set during that time. The writing of the book could happen at a different point in which the book is set. So in fact, the story of Ruth is set much earlier the story is set in the time period of the judges. And we learn this in the very first verse of the book. Let's look at Ruth 1, verse 1, just briefly. The first words of verse 1 read as follows. In the, day, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. So with those opening words, we know that the story of Ruth is set in the days of the judges, and in the canonical order that we're thinking about right now, the book of Judges comes right before Ruth. So the rationale for placing Ruth here after Judges in this canonical order is that Ruth is set in the same historical period. This makes a good deal of sense. And there's also this. The two books that come before Ruth in this canonical order, so not only Judges, but also Joshua before it, these two books, Joshua and Judges, they focus largely on the promise of land that God had given to Abraham. Joshua and Judges are asking the question, how is the land promise going to work itself out? But we know that along with the land promise to Abraham, God had also promised offspring. He had promised seed. The book of Ruth focuses on the second part of that promise, the seed or the great offspring of Abraham who arises at the close of Ruth. And who is that person? Of course, it's David. So we have then these three books in, the, in a row in this canonical tradition 
Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, which focus on the fruition of the land and offspring promises to Abraham. This too makes very good sense to place Ruth here in this position in the canon after Joshua and Judges. Further, the placement of Ruth after Judges also makes sense because it provides an immediate contrast or counterpoint to Judges, to the content of Judges. Now, in Judges, what do we have? We have volumes worth of covenant infidelity, rebellion against God, and a straying from his word. Judges is a downward spiral of very untoward, atrocious transgression on the part of Israel. And then comes Ruth, right after Judges, where we have a glowing example within the same time period of covenant fidelity and kindness and obedience and faithfulness and godly human relationships. As Bruce Waltke has said, the story of Ruth, quote, is a burst of heavenly sunshine. I love that. It's a burst of heavenly sunshine in the dark, bloody period of the judges, close quote. A burst of heavenly sunshine in the dark, bloody period of the judges. So Ruth, right after Judges, makes good sense because it provides a meaningful contrast to the bleakness of Judges. And even more, the placement of Ruth after Judges and before Samuel also makes good sense because in Judges we have that repeated refrain throughout Judges 17 through 21, there was no king in Israel. That phrase appears several times in those chapters. Well, one way that Ruth, the book of Ruth, can be considered is it's the birth narrative of a king for Israel, a king named David. So we can view the book of Ruth as a transitionary book coming right after Judges. We go from no king in Judges to a king at the end of Ruth. And then, of course, Samuel, which follows on the heels of Ruth in this particular canonical order, Samuel is all about kingship, isn't it? It's about kingship in Israel after the time of the Judges. So Ruth after Judges and before Samuel makes sense also for this reason. Finally, the placement of Ruth after Judges and right before Samuel makes good sense as well because these three books together present us with a cluster of women who do very noteworthy things. In Judges, we have women like Jael and Deborah. And then in Ruth, of course, we have Ruth herself and Naomi. And then in Samuel, we have Hannah, we have Abigail, 
we have the wise woman of Tekoa, etc. So for all of these reasons, friends, all of these reasons that we've just talked about, the placement of the book of Ruth after Judges and before Samuel, this is an artistic decision. This is a theologically prudent decision. Its placement here in the canon in the Greek canonical order, it brings out several important shades in the book that we need to be paying attention to. But now, what about the other two placements of the book of Ruth in the Hebrew canonical orders? Well, let's talk first about the book's placement in Hebrew Bibles in the section called the Writings, just after the book of Proverbs. Why was it meaningful for the Ben Asher family of the Masoretes to place Ruth just after Proverbs? Well, the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs mentions an eshet chayil, an eshet chayil in Hebrew, in other words, a worthy wife or an excellent wife. In Proverbs 31.10, we have an eshet chayil, an excellent wife, who can find. And guess what? Ruth herself is called an eshet chayil. In Ruth 3.11, Boaz says to Ruth, All my fellow townsmen know, Ruth, that you are an eshet chayil, a worthy woman. And those two instances of eshet chayil in Proverbs 31.10 and in Ruth 3.11, they are, only t- they are two of only three instances of the phrase in the entire Old Testament. That's very significant. The idea is that the book of Proverbs ends with the mention of an eshet chayil, worthy woman, and the book of Ruth follows Proverbs in this canonical order, and it presents us with the person of Ruth, who is the eshet chayil. She is the exemplary woman who is described in Proverbs 31. And so it makes definite sense for Ruth to be placed immediately following the book of Proverbs. Further, the very last words of the book of Proverbs, the very last words in the book, still talking here about the eshet chayil, or the worthy woman, the very last words read as follows. Let her works praise her in the gates. Going back to Ruth 3.11 again, If we were to translate the Hebrew very literally there in that verse, it would come out in English as this. Boaz says, All the gate of my people, all the gate of my people know that you are an eshet chayil. And so we have the word gate there in the Hebrew matching Proverbs 31.31. And then, of course, remember what happens at the close of the book of Ruth? The people who meet at the gate of the city end up doing what? Praising Ruth right there at the gates. 
in Ruth 4, verses 11 and 12. Again, Proverbs 31, 31, let her works praise her in the gates. And then at the end of Ruth, we have people praising the Eshatayil, Ruth, at the end of the book there. It makes sense then, doesn't it, for Ruth to follow on the heels of the book of Proverbs. Boaz, who becomes Ruth's husband, sits at the gate of the city in Ruth 4, and he gathers 10 elders there to do a a, a legal transaction. Well, the husband of the Eshet Chayil in Proverbs 31 is described, this is Proverbs 31, 23, he's described as being known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And so it sure makes sense to have the story of the Eshet Chayil, Ruth, and her husband in the gates following on the heels of the book of Proverbs. Well, friends, so far, we like the book of Ruth being placed after Judges and before Samuel in the Greek canonical tradition. That particular placement of the book brings out many important shades of the book's meaning, and we also like the placement of the book of Ruth after the book of Proverbs in Hebrew tradition. That placement also seems very appropriate. It seems very meaningful for other reasons than the placement after Judges. But what about the final canonical placement of the three, the placement of the book of Ruth in another Hebrew tradition just prior to the book of Psalms. What is meaningful about that positioning of Ruth? Well, using terms borrowed from Stephen Dempster, we can think of the book of Ruth as the little book of David. Again, one way that Ruth has been treated is it's the birth narrative of David. So that if it's placed just before Psalms, what do we have? We then have the little book of David, Ruth, coming right before the big book of David, which is, of course, Psalms. The vast majority of the Psalms are attributed to David, right? So it makes sense to place Ruth before Psalms for that reason. The little book of David followed by the big book of David. But more than that, In Ruth 2.12, Boaz commends Ruth for taking refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Well, just as Ruth took refuge in Yahweh, so her great-grandson David was all about taking refuge in Yahweh, as evidenced by what he wrote in the Psalms. The same Hebrew word that we translate as refuge in Ruth 2.12 is found in a host of places in David's Psalms. Let me read these to you. Psalm 5.11. These are all from David. Let all who take refuge in you, Lord, rejoice. Psalm 7.1, O Yahweh my God, in you do I take refuge. 
Psalm 11, 1, in Yahweh I take refuge. Psalm 16, 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 17, 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Psalm 18.30, God is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Are you taking refuge in God today? God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 31.19, oh how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 34, 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 22, none of those who take refuge in the Lord will be condemned. Psalm 37, 40, Yahweh helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Isn't it fitting, friends, that the book of Ruth, which presents Ruth as taking refuge in Yahweh, that the book of Ruth is followed by the Psalms of her great-grandson David, who everywhere is commending taking refuge in Yahweh. And in that same verse of Ruth, Ruth 2.12 again, where Boaz commends Ruth for taking refuge in Yahweh, Boaz also mentions the wings of Yahweh. It's a beautiful image, the wings of Yahweh. Boaz says to Ruth, a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, We get plenty of wings and wing talk from David in the Psalms. Psalm 17, 8, David wants to be hidden in the shadow of God's wings. In Psalm 36, 7, David combines the word refuge with the word wings, just like his great-grandfather Boaz did. David says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Or again in Psalm 57, 1, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Or Psalm 61, 4, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And Psalm 63, 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And Psalm 91.4, many of us know this verse, under his wings you will find refuge. Well, with all this use of the refuge of God and the wings of God in the Psalms, it makes sense, doesn't it, to have Ruth come just before the Psalms in the canon since we have David's great-grandfather Boaz talking about the refuge, the protective wings of Yahweh in Ruth 2.12. And it also makes sense for the Psalms to follow Ruth in this particular iteration of the Hebrew canon, since both books, both Ruth and Psalms, follow the same basic pattern 
of individual lament giving way to communal praise. Individual lament giving way to communal praise or praise by the community. So in Ruth, we begin the story with the lament of the individual Naomi in chapter 1, which finally in Ruth chapter 4 gives way to what? To communal, the whole community is praising at the end of Ruth. Likewise, in the book of Psalms, we have a number of individual laments that are grouped together near the beginning of the Psalms. So Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 10, etc. All individual laments. But then toward the end of the book of Psalms, in Psalms like Psalm 107, Psalm 118, Psalm 124, Psalm 136, we have the corporate praises of Israel, communal praises of Israel. Again, friends, in both Ruth and the Psalms, we have this same movement, this same movement from individual lament to corporate praise. And so also for that reason, it makes real sense for the books to be grouped together as they are in this iteration of the Hebrew canon. Again, as we've already said, even the placement, the location of books within the canon of Scripture is purposeful and it is theologically meaningful. And each of the placements of Ruth in these three different canonical traditions that we've looked at Each of them produce valuable insights, theologically rich insights. Each placement of the book enhances our understanding of what's going on in the book. And again, we need to stress, one canonical placement is not better than another. Collectively, they each contribute something important to our comprehension of the book. Isn't the canon of Scripture a marvel? Isn't it a work of art? Isn't it just mind-blowing? I hope you see that. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to jump into the first part of Ruth itself. This morning was meant to be an introduction just to some of the basic issues that surround the book, and the bulk of our time has been spent discussing uh, these three canonical placements of the book of Ruth. What I want to do as we bring this to, to a finish today is to step even further back, even further back than we already have and look just very briefly now at Ruth's importance within the entire 66-book canon of Scripture. Not just its location with the books that immediately follow and precede it, but its presence within the broader 66-book canon of Scripture. What is the great significance of this little four-chapter book as concerns the entire story of the Bible? Well, here it is in simple terms. It's this. At the beginning of the Bible, God promised that a serpent-crushing seed of the woman would come. That's Genesis 3.15. In the holy family lineage, through Noah and through Shem, 
came Abraham. And to Abraham, offspring was promised. Genesis 12, 2, Genesis 15, 5. Offspring was promised. Judah came in the lineage of Abraham, and to Judah was promised, already in the book of Genesis, was promised a kingly lineage. That's Genesis 49, verse 10. And here's where the book of Ruth comes in. As we look at the end of the book of Ruth, Ruth 4, verses 18 through 22, what we find is that in this very family lineage of Abraham and Judah, something breathtaking took place. Judah's son Perez, this is right in Ruth 4, 18 to 22, Judah's son Perez was the great, 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 great grandfather of Boaz. And Boaz was the great grandfather of David. And, of course, we know from the New Testament that in David's line comes the seed, the offspring that would destroy the serpent at last, Jesus Christ our Lord, in the lineage of David, in the lineage of Judah, in the lineage of Abraham. So get this, friends, as we work this to a close now, get this. From this little family unit in Ruth that starts off so incredibly broken, God ends up bringing forth the Savior of the world. That is the broader canonical significance of the book of Ruth. But don't miss this. The people in the book of Ruth are ordinary folks. They're ordinary folks who simply live faithfully. They're doing ordinary things in the book of Ruth, like gleaning grain and eating together and working together and having talks with one another, but they are displaying through all of it faith and kindness and obedience to God. And God, again, does something staggering, doesn't he, through their ordinariness and through their faithful living, something that happens well after their lifetimes. He brings the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what Robert Hubbard says in his commentary on Ruth. I think it's excellent. Hubbard says this, Our unvoiced dream is that our work and play, family and friendships, might more than just mark time before eternity comes. We wish them to please the heart of God, to bring him glory, and to advance his plans. Hubbard says, It's here that the story of Ruth strikes a responsive chord in its audience. It portrays God as involved in life's ordinary affairs. Indeed, those ordinary affairs are exactly the arena in which God chooses to operate. Ruth describes how God works through, not despite, the everyday faithfulness of his people. 
close quote. My friend, as you go into this week, in this new year, as you go into this new year in a world that is chaotic, like it was in the time of Judges, I challenge you this week to consciously, consciously live circumspectly under God in your every moment. Live your every hour. doesn't matter what you're doing. Live your every hour faithfully to Him, worshipfully to Him, in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit of God whom Father and Son have sent. Glorify God this week by letting your light shine in a darkened context just as Jesus has commanded and let God take care of the results. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is good for us to be in your word. It is good for us to listen to your voice speaking to us through your word. And it is good for us to get up now after this time of service and live out your word, be doers of it. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, this week, remind us of the things that we have looked at today and help us, Lord, in our uh, transformation to look more and more like Christ. In our every day this week, may you give us power and grace to live out kindness and faithfulness and obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of reminder, uh, this 12 weeks is supplementary to the current sermon series that we're doing on the book of Ruth. I remember hearing as a kid that if you stood on the shore of the ocean and threw a small pebble into the ocean, the entire level of the water of the ocean would rise, however slightly and imperceptibly it would rise, just by virtue of the fact that you have thrown something into the ocean, you've displaced some water, and uh, the water has to rise to take, uh, to take into account the volume of the little pebble. Now, of course, the physicists among us can correct me if I'm wrong on that theory, but for our purposes right now, it's serving an illustrative purpose. Yesterday in the sermon, we were talking about this ordinary family in the ancient Near East who essentially live ordinary lives, but live those lives very faithfully to God. And in that living faithfully to God, God so worked in their lives that he produced something monumental in the end, which is the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. So like a pebble that is thrown off the coast of Morocco into the ocean, and the water level rises 4,500 kilometers away off the coast of Newfoundland, so this little family, their faithful living, produced ripples that eventuated into something monumental that God brought about. I love this teaching of our Lord in the Bible, that our seemingly mundane, everyday actions and words done in faithfulness to God can end up producing great things that may be years down the road past our lifetime by several decades or centuries. 
Of course, obviously, it won't be as it was for Ruth and Boaz. No savior of the world is going to come about because of our uh, acts of faithfulness toward God. But nevertheless, I think the principle still is there. The principle remains that our everyday actions of faithfulness can end up in God's providence creating, resulting in great things. We might even put it in terms of Matthew 6 verse 10, that our spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled actions and words and things we carry out on the earth are being done as it is in heaven. That is, God is working through those very actions, words, faithful, godly uh, things that we're, that we're carrying out. God in heaven is working through those things to bring about something great in his plans and his designs. Now, the vast majority of God's works in the book of Ruth, the vast majority, are done through human actors. It's only extremely rare in the book of Ruth that we have God directly intervening himself into human affairs. But I think this is part of the teaching of Ruth that God is at work in his church through our everyday faithful living, our everyday faithful works of generosity, kindness, faithfulness. And so with a verse like Zechariah 7 verse 9 in mind, I want to challenge you today to go and show kindness and mercy to one another, to your neighbor. And I challenge you to do that. I challenge me to do that, to be a doer of that word. We all know that our world right now is in desperate need of kindnesses and mercies uh, that come from human being to human being. So go and be a doer of this word. Take a risk. It will please the heart of God. It will bring benefit to your neighbor. It will bring benefit to yourself. And it may cause ripples of light that go out and outlast us even, outlast our lifetimes. Be well, do well, and we'll see you back here next Monday at noon.